What's up, film fans? How goes it? Welcome into the Second Day Film Podcast. It is the official podcast of the Second Day Film Club. I'm your host, Brandon Champion, joined by the savant of the cinema, Mike Nichols, on February 27th, 2023. I almost forgot what day it was there, Mike. It's Monday, unfortunately. It's cold and rainy here in Michigan. Uh, how goes it over there in Texas? Uh, it was a beautiful sunny day. It's a very special day for me. Today is actually my dad's birthday. So happy birthday, dad. All right. Shout out. What's your dad's name? Greg Nichols. Greg Nichols. What's up? Happy birthday, Greg. Uh, thanks for giving us this fine gen here, uh, Mike Nichols, who I love talking about the movies with. Uh, and Mike, we got four pretty good ones coming here tonight. Uh, yeah. Four that I think all have some Oscar buzz or all have, have been Oscar nominated. Um, so, you know, I think it's a good time to talk about it. We got the Oscars coming up next month. We had four that had some Oscar buzz last uh, last pod, and now we got four more here. So it's a good timing for that. But let's, right get, let's get right into it because we got a lot to get to, Mike. And I know um, you just got a fancy brand new projector that you sent me a picture of. Uh, you guys all snuggled up there watching it on a projector. And I mm -hmm. don't think that we could have picked a more perfect movie uh, for you to have watching uh, on your projector there than The Fablemans which is Steven Spielberg's greatest and latest. Uh, it, it's really a film about him. It's growing up in post-World War II Arizona, young Sammy Fableman aspires to become a filmmaker as he reaches adolescence, but soon discovers a shattering family secret and explores how the power of films can help him see the truth. Uh, as I said, directed by the great Steven Spielberg, and it stars an ensemble cast led by Michelle Williams, Paul Dano, Judd Hirsch, Seth Rogen, and Gabriel LaBelle plays the young Sammy Fableman who... I'm just going to assume is uh, who the character that's modeled after Steven Spielberg here, Mike. But <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I'm going too far out on a limb there if I if I take that that plunge into the deep end there. <laughs> but uh, Mike, I, I really enjoyed this movie. I mean, it's Steven Spielberg. He's the greatest director of, I don't know, what, multiple generations at this point for the last 30 years. He's been regaling us with some of the most iconic films, actually more than 30 at this point. Man, we're getting old. But But this one... It, you know, he's taken us everywhere. He's taken us to space. He's uh, given us dinosaurs. He's given us fantastical stories. He's given us World World War II epics. Uh, he's given us epic biopics, but he's given us uh, science fiction. This one, out of all the films that Steven Spielberg, Spielberg has ever done, though, uh, feels really personal. And it almost mm. feels like we we got to sort of put the, the filmmaker, Steven Spielberg, aside and get to know like the person and director in this movie. And I think that's why it works so well. Yeah, this is Steven Spielberg telling his story. And, you know, for, for a man who's made like some of the, like the best movies ever made, it is kind of hard to go in and like top, like any of his like lists where it's like, how do you rank Steven Spielberg's best movies? It's, it's like, it's so hard to even like, rank and and i would say like this is one of his best movies i really do think that i think mm -hmm. it was it was wise that he waited until he had time to reflect on his life and really fully look back on it more and you know i this is a really really beautiful reflection on what was his childhood what were his parents to him and what did becoming a creative visual storyteller mean to him and that's that's what's explored in this film um it's really a beautiful movie and it's 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 got incredible performances it's got a lot of heart to it it's got you know a lot of spielberg-esque themes and moments you know that are still there and yet in some ways this one does feel different like it's it's unique in that sense and even the ending where we we have a bunch of like little meta nods uh, that I don't really you, know, you don't see a ton of meta in, in Spielberg's Spielberg movies like I could be wrong but maybe I just maybe I haven't seen a lot of meta in his movies but uh, yeah this one where it's literally him at like John Ford John Ford and then like as the camera shifts it it follows the camera advice obviously yeah. like what a beautiful little moment to end on uh, yeah this is definitely his most personal film no question I wrote down a movie lovers movie you know because yeah. it feels like it's it's a family blockbuster you know loaded with spielberg's classic sort of like and what would you call it like light touch it's his movies right, are always yeah. very easily digestible poignant, you know point yeah poignant relatable yeah right. but this movie has like some very real and serious depth going on in the background you know because it's it's basically how he learned to see and appreciate and understand his parents 
through his love of film. And you can, you can really just see like, what I think is very interesting is this movie, like it, it takes that moment when you realize, I don't know when it is in life. It's probably different for everyone, but it takes that moment in life when you realize that your parents are more than just your parents, you know, yeah. and they're actually like people with flaws and they're not like superheroes and they're not like someone that you're just supposed to be mad at, or they, there's a reason they do everything they do. And you sort of start to see them more as like individual people rather mm -hmm. than, just your parents and this movie obviously steven spielberg or the character based on steven spielberg does that through his love of film and because of that it's like it's got so much to be drawn to if you love movies because it's just it's got those steven spielberg vibes man they're almost hard to explain at times but you know what i'm yeah. talking about oh here's a perfect example the scene where at the, after he's like confronted the the bully and they're in the locker he's like you don't ever tell anyone this about me that i'm like sensitive or something you know whatever and then he's like, yeah, I'm not saying I'll never tell anyone. We'll say make a movie about it someday, which is <laughs> I lost it. like, yep, here he was making a movie about it. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Even the way they approached that was super nuanced and cool. Like how the, right. you know, he earns the boys respect, but he's not ever going to, he's not ever going to give him respect in public. And and all the relationships in this, you know, Michelle Williams, I think was just fantastic. Oh, uh, yeah. right, nominated for an Academy Award. I mean, she's great and everything, but uh, oh man. And this just, the way that yeah. she portrays the, uh, the emotions that go with being a mom who obviously, you know, has mixed feelings about who she loves here. And well, she loves multiple people just in different ways. And the way yeah. they went about that, like not really vilifying her, but still not making it look like it's a great thing. It, yeah. it was just, you know, again, this is all through Spielberg's perspective. So I think that taking that personal look really helped amplify everything that was happening on screen. You know, similar stuff with Paul Dano when he's, you know, he's like a hardworking guy, loves his kid, wants to support him, but he doesn't really understand or relate, you know, because he's these facts by numbers, you know, finance computer guy, and his son is a creator, you know? Mm. Uh, so it's 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 hard for him to relate, but you can tell that he loves him all the way. And then at the end, he finally comes around and, you know, supports his hobby because he realizes it isn't a hobby at all to him. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's it's really interesting to see a filmmaker step aside and tell not just his own story, but his parents' story. Very, very personal, private, uh, you know, in, intimate details about his parents' story and their relationship. You know, um, uh, spoilers alert, obviously, but uh, he explores the fact that there was like a, a kind of an affair uh, and then a divorce. That was, of all people. Oh, my God. I know. Gosh. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> who knew <laughs> but uh yeah no um and and the way he portrays his parents so um without judgment it's just uh -huh. this is what it was like his dad wasn't a bad man his mom wasn't a bad woman but their marriage wasn't healthy uh it didn't work um even though they both tried to make it work and it was uh it was it was really impressive to see something so like heavy be portrayed so delicately, but also so gracefully with such mm -hmm. understanding. And um, that's Spielberg, man. There's there's yeah. there's few directors that have that ability to balance that all that's going on at the same time, and also just make a, a great film on its surface. Because technically, you know, when you watch a Spielberg movie, it's like the way the camera moves is unlike anything else. I don't even really know how to describe it again, but it's like it's just yeah. so seamless. It really makes you feel like you're just in the scenes with this family. You feel yeah. like you're a part of it instead of watching it. And that just takes an incredible skill level. A um, couple of side characters got to shout out. Uh, Judd Hirsch as the Uncle Boris, only in the one scene, but my God. Oh my God. Incredible. Yeah. Absolutely incredible. Talking to him about how he's never going to be able to have yeah. love for his family and his love for art. And they're constantly going to be battling with each other and how that relates to him and his, his mother just great stuff that sort of sets the tone and the theme for the whole movie. And then Julia Butters, uh, who's our, who is our girl from uh, once upon a time in Hollywood. She was that little girl. She's uh, she plays his sister, Reggie, and she has a couple standout moments as well. Yeah. Yeah. Th there was no, there was no performance in this film. I thought was weak. Um, they were all interesting in their own way. Um, I yeah, especially loved uh, Ga Gabrielle LaBelle as, 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 Sammy quote, you know, we know it's, we know it's a young Steven Spielberg, but it's interesting. He, yeah. He like, good, good for him. Like you imagine being that age and be like, Hey, the biggest director in the world, he wants you to play him as a kid. Yeah. Like the, the amount of pressure you would probably feel. And like the, 
Man, and Michelle Williams is you're going to play your mom. Yeah, and Paul Dano is your dad. And, um, <laughs> is that the Rogan? You know that co- comedian? Yeah. He's also in this movie. Yeah. Steven Spielberg will be watching you and crying every shot. Uh, good luck. Don't mess this up. No pressure, kid. I, there's props for him. Like all, all these other people are really seasoned. They have a lot of experience under their belt. This is this first kid's, as far as I know, this is his first big like thing. Maybe he's done other stuff, but uh, you know, either way, well done. I think that kid probably had in some ways the toughest, the toughest job of anyone. And he gave a beautiful performance. Well done. Well done, Gabriel. I agree. And also if this is, I know, like I've seen enough Steven Spielberg, like, uh, you know, autobiographies and stuff to biographies to know that, like to see some of his like early film work and what stuff he would go out in the desert with his friends and man, kudos to that kid, man. Holy cow. You can see he had greatness on him early because the stuff they would come up with where it was like stepping on the boards so the snow yeah. would come up and just the inventive stuff that he would do even at an early age to, to make these films is pretty incredible. So, yeah. Um, oh man, that scene, I have to say that scene was so good at making you feel like three things at once. One, you're feeling like the humor, the fact that these are a bunch of kids making a movie very like, you know, it's a very rickety like way to make a movie. It's funny seeing them as kids, like try to find ways to like, you know, without a budget, try to make it look like an explosion or try to make someone look shot, you know, and, you know, the kids, you know, the way kids act, you know, and stuff, all that was really funny. But then you also have the moment where he's telling this kid, Hey, you just saw your friends die. They're all dead. That's the kind of attitude I want you to have. And then the kid is like, Oh, my friends died. He's like, yeah. Yeah. And then the kid really starts crying for real. And then he's doing the scene and you're like, I'm laughing. I'm sad and sympathetic and I'm like a little awestruck at the moment all at the same time. There's a lot of moments in this movie and Spielberg's great at this where you feel multiple feelings watching it all at once. You're like, Oh, I'm sad. Oh, this is funny. Oh, that's crazy. Oh, like he's great at that. And this is just one of those movies where the, like the kaleidoscope of his own life is, is like kind of his, his love letter to film. It's, Mm -hmm. it's so good. Mm-hmm. And I feel I, like I know I now I feel like I understand him as a director more now, like why he yeah. picks the topics he does, why he's interested in the things he does, you know, yeah. it just sort of gives perspective to his entire career. And yeah. I'm so glad we got this, you know, before he was not that he's close to leaving us, but like, he, you know, before well, you he's know. not around, I'm glad. You know? we did this, you know? Yeah, so. definitely. Yeah. I th- and I hope we see more of this. Like, you know, Ken Brana did uh, Belfast, Nassau, Steven Spielberg's on the Fablemans. I hope we see more like storytellers kind of go the memoir route where they like maybe start doing their like it would be cool to see marty do this like, it would be cool to see christopher nolan do this you know like um i'd be interested in seeing like some of those more behind the scenes realities exposed um one last thing i will say about the film is that the movie has a lot to do with projectors uh and like the old school way of shooting with film with light with perspective and um i, I haven't had a tv in a while but as Champ mentioned earlier in the pod, I ended up uh, getting a projector. Uh, my buddy and I used to watch movies that way on his projector. And now I like I don't need a TV because I can just like plug my laptop or phone to the projector and watch everything on the wall. And it's like it's bigger than a TV screen. It's And it's really fun. It makes it feel like an event. And this I, the projector came that day. I set it up that like that evening after dinner. And then I watched this. And this was my first movie on the projector. And of all films to watch on a projector, like mm-hmm. it just felt like the perfect, like the perfect one that had just come out. So I always really love this movie for that. So I give this movie an A. I'm at an eight and a, eight and a half out of ten. It's in my top five for the year. And Mike, we're almost eighty episodes into the second day film podcast. A projector noise has played at the start of every single one. So only yeah. appropriate, only appropriate that we're we're uh, representing the projectors here at the second day film podcast. Uh, let's move on. That's a win. Go see it. I think you can rent it right now on Amazon for like, yeah, five bucks. that's, that's uh, how I saw it in theaters. It's kind of had its theater run at this point. So I, I uh, couldn't find it. I was looking all over and on Alamo draft house here. And also I couldn't find Fableman's. So I'm glad yeah. I finally got to see it on Amazon, but yeah, sure. Check it out. People, you will uh, not be sad about it. Uh, let's move on, Mike, uh, to another highly anticipated film. We're going to dip back into Marvel here. We've we've kind of avoided Marvel for the last couple episodes. Uh, it's hard to do these days with all this, the series coming out, with the movies coming out, uh, the latest of which, or actually it's not even the latest of which because Ant-Man is out now, but we waited until uh, this was out on Disney Plus to review it. 
It is Black Panther Wakanda Forever. And while we're getting some, um, you know, uh, nostalgic here, Mike, you know, Black Panther was actually the first film we ever reviewed on the Second Day Film Podcast way back really? in 2018. Yep, wow. It actually hit uh, the the anniversary was a couple uh, couple weeks ago, so uh, that was cool. And I'm sure it was a lot worse than this, but <laughs> uh, <laughs> hey, it's, it's fun and it was uh, nostalgic to see that pop up. But in this film. The people of Wakanda fight to protect their home from intervening world powers as they mourn the death of King T'Challa. Ryan Coogler returns to direct this film. Letitia Wright plays Shuri. Uh, Lupita Nyong'o is Nakia. Denai Guria Okoye. Winston Duke plays M'Baku. Angela Bassett is Ramandra. Uh, Tena Cuerta is Tamor. He's our main villain in this. Martin Freeman also returns as Everett Ross. Uh, Dominic Thorne is Riri Williams, who will be a character that will be popping up uh, here in the MCU in the future in the show Ironheart. And then we've also got Ju Julia Louis-Dreyfus, who shows up uh, as this lady, Valentina Allegra de Fontaine, who pops up in just so much random stuff. And I'm no, still not quite sure how she fits into all this MCU stuff, Mike. We've seen her in a few things. Um, but obviously, this film does not include uh, the great Chadwick Boseman, who died um, mm. Uh, before this film could be made and instead it had to be completely sort of revamped and reworked uh, to focus on different things because they made the decision not to replace uh, Black Panther, at least not in this movie uh, with a new actor. So and I think that was the right decision. Let's just start there, Mike. Do you think that was the right decision not to just replace Chadwick? Um, I don't know if it was the best decision for the movie, but I understand why they did it. Yeah, I totally understand why they did it. I I think it was probably the best decision for this MCU, but I think the character Black Panther is really like important and special and and like there should, you know, it should get to be one of those things that, you know, hey, this is in the cultural consciousness now. Like, you know, we're we're probably never not going to have movies about Superman and Batman and, you know, Cinderella or Hamlet. So like, you know, I think Black Panther should get to be up there. So I think eventually, yeah. The role should be recast and redone, and you know, well, I think told we for new generations. Know. But like for the MCU, like just like like you know, two years later, it probably best to not to, yeah. to let it you know let it go. I, I but it was, it's hard. It I can see arguments for both sides, honestly. I understand why they didn't do it. Like they want to honor the guy, and we got that right from the jump where the the Marvel uh, scroll was just all Chadwick Boseman, oh, man. Uh, which yeah. I thought was, was a fantastic tribute just right off the jump. And they, they don't waste any time. The first scene, uh, we see him, uh, we, we learn that he's died. And then the, the funeral scenes are very moving. Uh, the music is fantastic. The, the production design is incredible. Once again, with the costumes and the look of Wakanda. Um, but it, it's very, it's all very moving and sort of an ominous start to the movie, but it's just, and really in general, Mike, like, I think it's well done, but like, it's just hard to ignore the big elephant in the room with this, yeah. movie, which is yeah. that T'Challa just isn't there. And there's a lot of these solid side characters. And I just, I just ran them down and they all do a, a solid job and do what they can to carry the film. But I, I just, there's, there's just not enough star power, honestly. Like you need the main superhero. Like I, I hate to say it. It's, it's like a, it's a black Panther film without black Panther. And it's just, it's glaring. Yeah, it's uh, it, it definitely you can tell that this was not the original intention. And I don't know what all had to go on behind the scenes after, you know, he passed. So I, like it, it's a I tough feel, I, yeah, it's I a feel tough I feel bad for them going into it. because It's like I'm sure they had to rewrite this whole movie last second. I'm sure this like I mean, we know that they're not good to special effects people anyway. But I am sure that that even made it harder for them to be like, hey, we had already been prepping this. Now we have to redo everything. Like the script had to change the actors. I mean, I, I really feel bad for like everyone who was on that set, who was close to him now having to like act out about him being dead. Like, you know, it was, must've been a really hard production. Um, mm -hmm. So I'm not going to say that this is one of my favorite Marvel movies, but I do respect that they got through it with as much grace as they did given yeah. the fact that I, they not only lost a friend, but they lost like the main character of the story, you know? Mm -hmm. So then it shifts to Shuri, who's the main character of this story. But yeah, it there there is something that just feels a little sad about this one. Right. And I would never say that the movie was, you know, 
bad or anything. I, I quite enjoyed a lot of aspects of this movie. You know, yeah. it was, um, you know, I, th I think I mentioned the music. I really like that. But, um, you know, I, I just think, uh, oh, um, our Angela Bassett blew me away with that. Uh, some of her impassioned speeches, uh, whether it was to the at the very start when she's, you know, holding oh, yeah. against the United Nations or uh, the, the impassioned speech she makes in front of her people when uh, she's she's feels like she's lost everyone and she strips uh, Denai Guria's character, uh, the leader of the Dora Milaje, and she strips her of that. And yeah. it's not because she's mad at her. It's just that she's she's hurting, you know, and she's yeah. looking for someone to blame and something. She's trying to do something active to try and change her situation. And I just think that she embodied everything that was required from that role in terms of you know, the pain and the torment that she was going through while still trying to be a strong leader for this wounded nation. Like she just balanced all that so well. And she became the first Marvel person to be nominated for an acting award uh, for it. So uh, yeah, I, I think it was well-deserved. Yeah, no, Angela Bassett is just really flooring in the role. Like anytime she's speaking, especially when she's like speaking truths in powerful ways, it is definitely electrifying. Um, yeah, the other cast did, like, I thought they had good performances as well, but she was definitely the standout. Um, the, I, you know, I think if I had to sum up, like, how I felt about this movie quickly, I think everything that was about reflecting on Black Panther or uh, T'Challa's death and, like, grieving that loss, I thought all that was done really, really well. Um, the opening with the white the the white funeral was gorgeous, and with everyone crying, you were just like, "I bet that's really just them crying." Like, I don't even know if they have to act, but it's it's amazing. Like, there were a couple of moments of this I almost teared up watching, like like those oh, grieving absolutely. scenes. Um, everything that had to do not with grieving T'Challa did not feel as strong for me. The plot did not work as well for me. Um, I think overall, the movie what was what worked balanced out and won out over what didn't work but uh yeah like there's a there's a large chunk of the movie that it just kind of feels like what what, what is this like what, why is this happening um yeah, i didn't think the character of riri was used all that it, no. that one felt like they just threw her in because they're trying to set up Ironheart, and yeah it's, it's like like literally they find her she's the student at mit whatever student at mit or harvard or whatever is already building stuff for the cia it's a little bit of a stretch but then it's like they're under attack and two seconds later she's like flying around in an iron man suit like battling like super villains it's it's a little bit unrealistic and you know so that kind of yeah. took me out of it. what do we feel about uh marvel aquaman how do we feel about that? <laughs> okay i i still think that there's no like with aquaman and this like there's so much of it around where i'm just like why would they do this underwater like none of this makes any sense to me like with aquaman like uh what's what's amber heard's name she's literally swimming in like stiletto heels she's like swimming around in high heels and i'm like why why is that with this like why, why is that the choice made for a, an, an underwater person and then with like you know with namor's people i'm like why are they all feathers underwater like think about this like and with the bombs they have water bombs like how in the world does that hurt anything it's literally a water balloon so I don't know, like a lot of it didn't like, I get that it's a superhero movie. And I just need to like leave it alone, but I don't know. It just, it, I, I, I don't know how well it worked for me. I thought it was cool. That it was like, oh, we're like, we're doing a more Aztec twist on it. Like that was interesting. And I did like that they explored more like um, of that mythology. Like the fact that um, Namor is the leader of uh, uh, what's the name of the city? Um, uh, Tolokan. Which yeah. is a real, it's based on a real... Uh, Mayan, like, I think. Or, yeah, Mayan. Um, yeah, it's based on a real, like, mythological thing, which I'm like, this is cool. I like when Disney showcases mythologies that aren't just, like, British stuff or Greek mythology. It's like, there should be more focus on that. So, I like that aspect. I just, I thought the way it looked maybe didn't always work for me, especially when they're fighting people in, like, you know, super super advanced armor and they've just got like i don't know spears but it was it was fine i guess it was they, fine they, they, tried cool. spend, they tried to spend at least they tried to spend time developing as a character you know he they, we get the whole scene when he takes 
uh, you know, he takes her down there and shows him what is what happened to his people and why he has revenge, wants revenge on the surface world, you know. Yeah. And those are all good and fair reasons. I'm, I'm, I think he might take it a little bit too far, but that's kind of the whole theme of the movie is 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 letting go and forgiveness and revenge doesn't get you anywhere. And revenge is just a cycle. And, you know, it's it, that's that's really what it what the whole thing is all about in the end. And, um, you know. I, I think that some of that landed. I think some of the action sequences were fine, but it was nothing that was like standing out to me in terms of the overall MCU. You know, I've seen better fight sequences than what we get in this movie. And again, some of that might just be because when you deal with water people, it's just kind of awkward. I think you're right yeah. about that. Um, but, you know, it was fine. It was fun for, there was some some good fighting going on here. And then when Shuri finally donned the Black Panther gear, which we knew that was coming, it didn't really hit like I thought it would. I thought mm -hmm. that it would be like a bigger moment in the whole movie. And it just kind of happened. And I was just kind of like, okay, yeah, I know we all knew this was coming, but I thought it was going to be like more of a buildup than it was. Although it yeah. was nice to see her sort of get some what guidance or warning from Killmonger in the ancestral plane. That was a cool inclusion that I also liked. Also, she got stabbed like directly yeah. through her like back like it was they should have taken out her vertebrae and her whole spine like right through and then she's just like fine like i don't know if you're gonna do a wound do, like, tech, Mike. Wakanda do, Wakanda do it tech. do the wound on the side or do it like somewhere where it's like not fatal it's like that's clearly a fatal wound like i don't know <laughs> what, but um, uh yeah the message of forgive uh it had a good message about forgiveness and like you know making peace with not just our losses, but also our ourselves. Um, uh, I would give this a B minus. Yeah, I'm at a seven out of ten. Uh, I get, I think I give the original Black Panther an eight, so like that one better. Um, but they, like we've talked about off the top, they lost their main star. This was a very challenging movie to make, I'm sure, for the entire cast, for Ryan Coogler, uh, for the entire crew. And they literally lost a member of their family. For us fans of the MCU. You know, I know Chadwick Boseman's loss hit pretty hard. You know, he was a character, Black Panther, that we were really just starting to get to know. I mean, he oh, was yeah. gonna be one of the guys that sort of carried the MCU forward. And oh, unfortunately, yeah. we lost him. This is a guy who embodied some iconic roles uh, in his time, you know, uh, all through the years here. So it's it's a big loss and it, it's a big loss for the MCU. It's a big loss for for films. But uh, really, for anyone who watched him in the movies, uh his loss was felt in this movie. And I think the movie was hurt because of it. That's not to say that it was a bad movie, but it would probably be somewhere in the middle for me in terms of my overall rankings of the MCU. Yeah. Yeah. I have to say like lately Disney has not had a good run of like their comparative content. So, I mean, they just came out with a Pinocchio this movie this year and then another Pinocchio was made and that was clearly the superior Pinocchio movie. They did Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. That was their big multiverse movie. And then Everything Everywhere All at Once came out. And that was clearly a superior multiverse movie. And now we have, you know, uh, Wakanda Forever. And a lot of people are kind of like saying it did, like, it did give them reminders of Avatar Way of Water, which I, I get why, like, that comparison is seen. But it's like, I don't know. It is clear that, like, Disney is not making the top tier stuff of anything anymore like for all these movies that are coming out about a subject disney might have a movie but another movie will come out that's frankly the superior film and uh yeah, yeah i mean i don't I think know if we it's... can say that like across the board because like you, I, I get what you're saying but like we just lauded andor so like you know like, yeah let's, let's, and then uh you know they've had they have some good animated stuff that comes out um you know so i think it can change quickly is my point, you know, and I, I do think there is something to be said with the, the, uh, the pace that Disney's coming out with MCU stuff. Like, I think they would be smart to kind of slow it down, dial it back, you know, maybe quality over quantity instead of pumping out four movies a year, maybe do two and make sure yeah. you get them right. And instead of pumping out four series back to back to back, maybe do two, you know, like there's plenty of content out there for people like us who, you know, there's a lot of cross interests, you know, people, if you like the MCU, you usually like Star Wars. If you like that, you like Lord of the Rings, you know, it's, yeah, yeah. there's plenty of stuff out there for people like us to watch. And there's not really a need for MCU and Disney to, to push stuff out if it's not going to 
you know, meet the quality that we're used to because, uh, you know, we're going to review Ant-Man on a future podcast, I'm sure. But even that is, you know, it's like what tied with Eternals for the lowest Rotten Tomatoes score. And we try and avoid that stuff. But when it's a huge movie, you're going to hear about it. Yeah. And so like it's it, these, these MCU movies, I haven't found myself quite as excited to watch them as I was in the past. So I just yeah. hope they can kind of uh, correct that course here. Um, I'm, I'm honestly scared to watch Ant-Man Quantumania just because I'm like, ugh, like it feels like a chore now. Like I have to watch it because it's got Kang or it's the next one. And it's like these, I don't know, like the, I haven't really liked like the latest phase a lot. I really haven't. Uh, there's been a couple of things that I liked, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, if that's like the final, is that the final one of Phase 4? I I think so. Yeah. yeah it's a little weird in the timeline. And we should mention that Black Panther probably is going to be recast at some point because there's a kid <laughs> that shows up at the end. So, oh, yeah. Uh, you know, that's probably inevitable. But, and with uh, everything being multiverse, they'll be like, oh, he's just a Black Panther from a different universe. Like, okay, let's <laughs> just do that. Uh, I wouldn't put it past him. But uh, mm. anyways, let's move on. Uh, you know, it, not a bad uh, addition to the MCU and a tough task, but, uh, you know, not yeah. one of the better films either, I'd say. Yeah, um, flawed, but a good tribute to Chadwick Boseman. Yeah, and that's really what this film, you know, that's what it's here to do. In the Yeah, MCU. for sure. Um, and it, it does succeed in that aspect. So I guess we should give it a little more credit. Uh, but uh, moving from um, one animal to another animal, neither of which are animals, which, by the way, we were going to do an animal podcast, Mike. I'm, I'm a little bit upset that I we didn't get to that. It was going to be four films that were all animals, but none we, of them were actually about an animal. We were going to do, yeah, we were going to do The Bear. Uh, the, the TV show about chef, uh, yeah, yeah, chef. Uh, we were gonna do the well, uh, we were gonna do Black Panther, and I think we were gonna try to do Puss in Boots, The Last Wish, but it's uh, yeah, yeah, no, we well, didn't end up doing it. <laughs> well, the film I'm talking about right now is called The Whale, mm. uh, it's directed by, mm. the, by the visionary darren aronofsky i guess uh a reclusive morbidly obese english teacher attempts to reconnect with his estranged teenage daughter this film stars brendan fraser in an incredible role of a lifetime sadie sink who is uh many will know from stranger things ty simpkins and hong chow samantha morton those are really the the five actors although we do have uh dan the pizza man uh, who is also in this? Who I'm pretty sure was just a guy on the crew. I'm not. I'm not, they they must have just got him off the street there and said, "Play the pizza man." Uh, that was kind of an interesting inclusion in this movie. I'd be curious what you think your thoughts on that is. But uh, Mike, this movie is going to start and end with Brendan Fraser. Uh, incredible work by the makeup team, the getting him to look like uh, this huge person. Um, and this performance throughout is, you know, this is Brendan Fraser, man. This is the guy who was George of the Jungle. This is the guy who you know, made me love the mummy movies because of how funny he was as Rick O'Connell in those movies and just how fun and actiony those were. And then he basically fell off the face of the earth for 10 years. And there's a lot of reasons for that, that I don't know if we really need to get into, but yeah. In, in, if you want to talk about a career Renaissance, I mean, this guy's winning every award there is. Yeah. Uh, and we're seeing that a little bit this year with not just Brennan Frazier, but also with, uh, every, everything everywhere all at once with, uh, you know, short round coming back. Love it. Um, <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> I, yeah, I love I love that guy. But uh, yeah, him and Brendan Fraser. It's good. It's good career renaissance here for them. I hope it and I hope it lasts. Brendan Fraser. Yeah, like I, I like after the whale. Like Kevin and I went. And we we're like, let's go back and watch the mummy movies. And we and they were. These are good. Like they're fun. Uh, they're they're fun. fun. And he's fantastic in those films. And yeah. then we watched a rom com with him in it just because she was like, I want to watch more Brendan Fraser. Um, yeah, I forgot or whatever. <laughs> no, it was uh, Mrs. Uh, oh God, uh, it's the one where uh, his twin brother is dead, and uh, um, uh, Ricky Lake, I think, is. I just think uh, of that movie when Elizabeth Hurley plays the devil. I think it came out oh, yeah. in like two thousand. Anyway, sorry, keep going. No, but uh, uh, Mrs. Winterborn, that's the that movie. So yeah, Brendan Fraser. It's nice to see him back on the screen, and wow. Does he deliver with a performance that I am just like at, when I was I, I saw this in theaters what, while I was watching it like the whole time I was I was just thinking like this is like I'm watching a little piece of film history right now live like mm-hmm. they're gonna study this role 
they're going to talk about this role like teachers and and film school and 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 students in theater school will will talk about like this is like a knockout performance that you will think about a lot like i thought about the film and that performance in particular for like weeks after that movie um you know like like, it was iconic well it's instantly iconic yeah, I mean, Darren Aronofsky's wild, dude. Like, I don't know how many... Of, did you see Mother that he came out with a couple years ago? Uh, you know, Requiem, uh, for a, Requiem for a Dream is a, is a... I know Evan Dean, if he was on this podcast right now, he would go on and on about Requiem no, for a I, Dream. No, I, I definitely... I enjoyed Requiem for a Dream. I saw it a long time ago, so I probably need to rewatch it, but I remember being, like, blown away by it. It was intense. And yeah, the, fount- I mean, the Fountain is an underrated story, I think. Uh, the Fountain was a little bit more of mixed results, but, I mean, Pie... Uh, what else? Black Swan. Black Swan. Uh, the wrestler. I mean, so this is this this <laughs> guy has. Uh, don't forget the Bible movie Noah. <laughs> yeah, that was a little weird, but but the wrestler again, <laughs> a similar situation where you saw uh, Mickey Rooney kind of have a comeback. Mickey Rourke. Mickey Rourke. Sorry, Mickey Rooney. All right, Mickey he's been off for a while. He's hey, Judy, Go- Judy Garland. Guess what I'm going to play? A wrestler. Shouts <laughs> <laughs> hey, to Mickey Rooney. Uh, but, but Mickey Rourke. Same sort of thing with Brennan. Freeman. Yeah huge yeah. comeback uh performance that sort of you know resurrected him but you know this this film is he's an auteur though darren Ar- aronofsky without question he has his own oh, very yeah. sort of style his films tend to be dark they're usually very psychological sometimes they have biblical themes you you, you announced uh or you just said noah but right. so you know yeah. what you're getting into when you watch a, a darren aronofsky movie and usually it's not a particularly enjoyable watch uh, often it, it really challenges the viewer. Uh, its characters are usually very flawed. They're dealing with a lot of sort of issues that are dealt with both interpersonally and outwardly with other people. And this film's whole vibe from the start is very ominous. You know, it's, I, I don't know what it is that there's the first scene is the picture of the bus getting dropped off. I don't know if that was the kid getting dropped off on the bus, the, the Jesus kid or whatever, who was running for mile. And I'm like, I didn't really know what that had to do with anything else because the whole rest of this film takes place in a, basically his apartment right and i think that's by design we're we're sort of thrown into this enclosed space which is this little apartment where this huge guy exists in his entire life and never leaves because he can hardly walk and uh just having that combined with the dark tone and sort of the disturbing things we're seeing portrayed on screen at times uh just really helped put you into the whole atmosphere of this movie to start off and then you've got brendan fraser you know reciting this poem about an essay about Moby Dick and we don't over and over again. And we don't really understand why until the end of the film. And that of course relates back to the themes of the film. Yeah. Um, but just to see him struggle like as this huge person, mm. uh, I mean, it was, it was hard to watch at times. Oh yeah. Like when, when they do the scenes where he starts like binging, like, bin, binge eating really intensely, like I got a little nauseous. I was like, Oh, like it was just the sounds of it. And then when he binges each too much and he like you start puking, like I was like, oh, like, I can't, like I, like I don't, I'm just one of those sympathetic pukers where if I see or hear puke, it like makes me really nauseous and like, like the sounds of him eating and then puking, I was like, oh, like it was, it was getting to me in the theater, uh, and it was so sad to think like that he was someone who the weight had walled himself up because like you said, he lives in this little apartment and he can't really leave because it's hard for him to walk, but also can we. Yeah, but he can't leave because it's also an upstairs apartment. And there's like these little crappy wooden, like rickety steps. So he literally can't get down now. He's just, he's up there in that apartment. Unless like they get a crane or something to get him down, but he's just trapped up there. And um, yeah, like it's just, like, so it also, I will, I will also mention, if anyone's curious, it is based on a play. So the 2012 play of the same name by Samuel Hunter um, so that also kind of makes sense why it feels a little bit like a play when you're watching it. It's all shot in the same like room and location. Um, you know, people come in and out, even like the way the scenes are like sectioned off into these two characters have their moment. And then these characters have their moment. Like it does feel like a play even while you're watching it a little bit. And mm-hmm. there was a couple moments in there where that was a bit of a weakness to me, where it feels like they were doing things that like, work in a play because characters are just well you're watching people on a stage they can't really move outside of that but this time i was watching people do those kind of motions but i'm like hey this is a this is a movie you can move the camera or you can give someone a different thing to do like um so there were a couple little moments like that where i wish that had gotten more cinematic but i mean overall this was a 
This was a damn good movie. The camera like never leaves Brendan Fraser. If you watch it, it's and I think that they're just giving us these constant close-ups of him, you know, doing this yeah. morbid stuff. Really, it's it's hard to watch. I mean, and it's it, it's really intense, really all throughout. And then, you know, aside from Brendan Fraser, I think Sadie Sink as his daughter really elevated the film as well. I mean, she's she's playing a tricky role in this, you know. And I thought she was mm-hmm. really good at balancing like you know this rude, clearly heartbroken kid with abandonment issues you know, while still offering sort of like guarded glimpses into how she really feels, which is she still loves her dad, but she's really, really mad at him, you know? Yeah. And, and usually when you, when you have to keep saying, I don't care about you out loud over and over again, which she does in the film multiple times, it probably means you do care about them. <laughs> if you're yeah. trying to say it over and over to convince yourself and you just feel bad for her because, you know, the guy, you know, uh, you know, spoiler, obviously, you know, he he fell in love with a guy and left his family. And, you know, you feel bad for him for that because he thought he was doing the right thing in the time. But he obviously has huge remorse for the mistakes he's made. And he's hoping his daughter is the one good thing he's ever done because he knows he's going to die. And uh, it's just a, their dynamic, I thought, really, really elevated the middle portion of the film because, you know, he's saying, oh, the money is, you know, I'll pay you to come back. And she's accepting that like yeah i i'm i'm coming i'm only coming back because you're paying me to but really that's just you know an excuse to protect her pride you know because Mm -hmm. she wants to come back clearly there's something that keeps bringing her back and it's i want to be in my father's life despite how disgusting and how much i hate him you know yeah it's i just think those those dynamics were really well explored in this film and i'm not sure it comes to a happy solution really either i mean they they have this final sort of showdown at the end of the film and then the white light comes and they both get risen into the air. I mean, yeah. what did you make of all that? To me, it's just more Darren Aronofsky in his biblical obsession. But you know, um, I- <laughs> yeah, the final moment where she begins to read, read the essay and he stands to her and then the light engulfs him and he, um, and then he gets the final, the memory of the family visit to the beach. Yeah. I would say redeemed or what was that? I don't know what. Uh, I took it to mean potentially two things. Uh, one is a literal re- read of it, which is he's dying. Like he stands up to try to like love her and the stand itself literally kills him. Like he has that heart attack. And as he's dying from the exertion of standing and he's about, he's, I mean, he was about to have a heart attack anyway, that's going to kill him. Um, that he then experiences paradise. Like he dies and goes to heaven. And that light is him being loved and welcomed. Um, and then maybe the memory of like the family is like a sign of his life flashing before his eyes or even just a reflection of, you know, like a happy Happier moment. times. Yeah. The, the other reading I had of it is that it's just symbolic of the idea of redemption. Um, the idea that like connecting with his daughter was the heaven for him. That was the redemption he sought. Um, mm-hmm. And that, you know, the memory of her on the beach is like this, like this is a sign of hope, like that mm-hmm. there's still good to be found. So I think there's a little re- literal reading of he died and went to heaven uh, or he's redeemed. And we're just showcasing that visually kind of like they do in movies like first reformed or, you know, stuff like that. So I don't know. I think there's a lot of takes you could have on it. Um, I think but, it, I think uh, that makes sense. I like that because it's it sort of like flips, you know, or at least it's like a payoff for a lot of what we're thinking about when we're watching the rest of the movie, which is, you know, shame, and he won't even let the pizza guy inside because he's ashamed and afraid. Right. And then when he finally shows him shows his face, you know, he reacts exactly how he thought he would be. You know, guilt is obviously a big thing because of him leaving his daughter and his family and yeah. him feeling bad about that. But then also just like how we as humans need connection. You know, we need someone to care for us. We need to care for someone. Otherwise things just, it doesn't work. You don't work as like a human if you're not feeling something for someone, you know? And uh, I think this film reflects very, um, it's hard to watch, but I think when it actually is reflecting it, it does it kind of tenderly and sort of uh, with a, maybe an optimistic point of view in a weird sort of way, because it, it definitely focuses on the need for human connection. And I think that's, something that all of us have, you know, especially if you felt lonely or something before, I think that's something that a lot of people can relate to. So yeah. uh, I thought Darren Aronofsky did really good work with this film. Uh, yeah. It's a tough one to watch. It's not something that I want to be watching like 
all the time uh, because it's it's just not really that easy of a watch or a pleasant watch. But the performances are incredible, and it's great to see Brendan Fraser back in the in the mainstream here. And I hope that he will continue to get roles because of it. I gave it an eight and a half out of ten. Yeah. Uh, one last thing I'll say, and then I'll give you a grade. Um, you know, obviously this is the big Brendan Fraser movie that everyone's talking about. But like like you said, there's a lot of good performances. I also just want to point out, and I'm I'm sorry if I got the name wrong. Uh, Hong Hong Chao. Uh, Liz, the nurse friend, who's Charlie's like only real friend, her performance also really moved me. And that's something that you'll see a lot in this movie is like, it's not just the like, as much as like Brendan Fraser gives like this, like maybe iconic performance, it the movie is not just like the Brendan Fraser show. Like there, Sadie Sink, like Hong Chai, like uh, there's a lot of really good acting in this movie. It is spread apart. And it's spread out and it's really hits you. And it, it also develops really good themes about like, you know, we were talking for a while, like after the movie for a couple of days about like, hey, what do you think about like healthcare for like morbid obesity or like, you know, what does happen? Like, like, what are your rights? Like with turning down health if you don't want it or did the friend was the friend owed something, you know, there's a lot in the movie that really makes you think about your own life or about healthcare in general. Um, and so it's good. It's good for that. And and this is the last thing I just wanted to say. I've never been in a movie before, in a movie theater at least, where everyone was crying. Like when the end of the movie happened, like I mean, I looked down, it's a it's a dark movie theater, but I looked over at me, Catherine has got tears coming down her face. My I've definitely got tears coming down my face. Um I looked at, at the the guy next to me. He's crying. Lady next to him, she's crying. Lady next to her, she's crying. Lady next to her is crying. Guy down from her is crying. Like I'm looking down the row. Like everyone's either wiping their face or I can just see the the tears coming down. And all over the theater, you can just hear like the like the sniffing and the like the like the the the, the cough like the the coughing and the like the sobbing. Like you can hear it all over the theater. It felt like being at a funeral. Like where you're just in a room full of crying people. I've never been in a movie where I experienced something like that until the whale. It's one of the most memorable, powerful theater experiences I've ever had going to see a movie. And just for that alone, like go see it. Uh, It's, it's, it's worth your time. I give this movie an A. That's the whale. Uh, I had to buy it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to watch it because I couldn't find it in theaters anywhere. Uh, so I think that's the only way to get it right now. But honestly, I'm not too mad about that because I want to show this to a lot of people. So I'll have the opportunity to do that now uh, as well. So Mike, that's enough sadness. Let's get on to um, another feel good. Let's get on to another feel good film here. Live in everyone's spirits here on February 27th, 2023. It's all quiet on the Western front. Uh, a young German soldier's terrifying experiences in distress on the Western Front during World War One. It's directed by Edwin Berger uh, and stars a handful of German actors. Uh, Daniel Bruhl is the only one I've ever heard of before, but there's a they all lot, the whole cast really does a, a fantastic yeah. job in this movie. Of course, it's a remake. Uh, well, yeah, it is a remake, right? 1930, right, is when the first one came out. One of the most iconic films, honestly, of all time, especially in pre-code early years of of cinema. Yeah. Uh, All Quiet on the Western Front did a lot to move yeah. film forward and sort of realize the potential that movies could have. Um, so it obviously is an iconic film from that standpoint. This is a German film. And honestly, Mike, I didn't even know this was coming. Like, I, I didn't know they were making another All Quiet on the Western Front. No, I no, right. Like, I was kind of like, who asked for that? First of all, like, <laughs> why are we messing with, why are we messing with yeah. this movie? Um, but Mike, man, holy cow, this movie uh, does, it, it, it follows the source material from what I understand, the, which is a novel that came out one year before the original film. Um, but it, it's, it, it follows the same sort of format with the same characters, but it adds one thing and it omits another. Um, and uh, which is, it adds this sort of like political storyline of uh, the the people that are sort of discussing whether the war should end. It focuses on that a lot more and takes the first person away, which the original film had. And in the original film, Paul also goes on leave for a little bit and has a mm-hmm. hard time adjusting back to society. That never happens in this movie. I think the filmmakers did that for a specific reason. Um, but, but this movie really serves the same purpose in the end that the original does. And it really is 
it's an anti-war film. It serves to show the oh, yeah. purpose, the futility of war, really. Yeah, uh, this is definitely a remake that earned the right to be made. Um, not all remakes do. Looking at you, Ben Hur. But uh, yeah, uh, this one is really good and worth watching. Um, it definitely, I would describe it as an anti-war war film um, because it is certainly a movie about war. And when you're done watching it, no part of you is ever like, hey, I would love to be in a war. Um, it looks terrible uh, because it is terrible. Um, the book, it was famous for being like, you know, one of those World War One books that came out that was like really honest about what it was like. And a lot of people even in Germany were like, hey, like this is not cool. You shouldn't write about like our war, like our soldiers and our war, like it wasn't heroic. And and all the a lot of the veterans of World War One were like, no, yeah, but that's what it was like. This was this was BS. Um Hitler even like I think had a hand. He did not want the book read because he said it was a oh it was wasn't uh you know it wasn't patriotic enough. Uh which you know I think the most patriotic thing you can do is expose like the BS you put your soldiers through and, you know, the BS that pol politics like leads to if, with people who don't have to fight in the war settings of the kids to die in these wars. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, um, this is a very patriotic movie in that sense, in my opinion. So, yeah, I, don't, I disagree with Hitler. Um, but, oh, good uh, job. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, this follows a young guy who goes into Germany. He's like, oh, war is going to be great. We're all going to be heroes. And then they go to war and it's hell. And it's even fun. though that's even though that's the cliche of like, oh yeah, a lot of war movies are like that, nothing in this movie ever feels cliche when you're watching it. They do a really good job of keeping it original, making it look and feel authentic, and just creating beautiful character nuance uh, that makes you care more and more as your heart just gets broken more and more. It's uh it's a really good movie. It does these little things that really help sort of hammer home the cost of war, you know, like by showing that the the, the uniforms are literally being pulled off the front in walk right. so they can give to more recruits to go out there. And like the yeah. one guy's like, oh, there's a name tag on here. And he's like, oh, it must have just been too small as he rips it and throws it uh, into the pile of the others. Uh, you know, there's, yeah. there's multiple scenes where they're counting the sort of dog tags and, and showing, you know, naming them off by name and go pick them up so we can, you know, write home to their parents. And it's just... All of these, every single one of these, you know, deaths is a person, a family, a, a member of their yeah. community, a society. And it's it really hammers home that idea of what's being lost in this movie. And, yeah, it's told from the German perspective. I don't think it really matters what perspective it's being told from in World yeah. War One because it's all the same. You know, like like I don't I mean, I've, I have never been in war, but World War One, like at least in terms of studying and being a history buff, like seems like more than any other war that it's like this shared plight of just absolute horror because mm. it's it's trench warfare that just seems like the worst thing on the planet the worst thing that's ever happened and there has to be some of like where these soldiers and we see it in the film where they're like yeah we're trying to kill them we hate those guys across the battlefield but at the same time those guys across the battlefield also understand us more than anyone else in the world you know so mm. they have like this shared yeah of horror and the movie does a really good job of sort of showing how yeah we might be fighting over a few inches here and you know going a couple yards this way and we might get a win here and you might get a win here but really we're all losing yeah isn't that crazy like no one gets me like the guy i'm trying to kill kill and who's trying to kill yeah, me that's what it is <laughs> like yeah it's really what it's like which is i think a, a, a something that this movie does really really well that sort of trying to put it in there and i you know off the top i told the things that were a little different from the original i think including the armistice plot was a nice touch because you can sort of juxtapose the cause of the war which is the decisions being made by these fancy men in fancy rooms dripping out of their tea and having all the food yeah. that they can have whatsoever and then you've got you know the, the those that are affected which which is the soldiers living in hell you know and yeah. by, by having that sort of an equal footing i think it does sort of tweak the messaging from the original because it's it's more an examine it like as the, where the original is more of like a an overarching examination of soldiers and how war changes them and and how it's bad you know what it's really about this one sort of strips it down to a more personal story about the men making the orders and then the ones that are dying because of those orders and I think because of that, it was a way to sort of take in a theme that, while was original in 1930, 
which was taking a nuanced look at war. That's been covered many, many times through the years now. So to sort of strip it down and look at it from a, you know, a very personal view of what it's like to be in these trenches, I thought was a good idea. Yeah, this movie did a great job. And it's particularly true. Of, I mean, it's true in all wars, but it was especially true like in World War One, where it's like the officers, the commanders who are running the war are not experiencing the literal war. Um, you know, these, know, these are guys who are good for it. And even in the end, they're like, well, whatever, we're making peace, but I'm going to go down with a fight, even though peace yeah. is done. And it's like, he doesn't go down with a fight. His men all go down like in the fight. Like it's terrible. It's, it's awful. Terrible. Um, it's his ego like to yeah. pump his ego he's willing to risk thousands of men it reminds no me the, the scene from shrek where Lord Farquaad's like some of you may die but it is a sacrifice i am willing to make it's like that's literally what's happening at the end like, no, uh, no, only mike nichols it. lady only mike nichols lady and gentlemen could go from all quiet on the western front to shrek because that i'm a- because i'm right <laughs> <laughs> Uh, another thing I would say is it did a good job, uh, especially in the character of Cat, uh, where he's like talking about the, the letter from the wife and he's like, you know, worried about like he's never going to be able to fit back into society in peacetime. And it's like the, the whole question of what's a soldier without a war? And, mm-hmm. how, like, you know, the question of how will these guys ever be able to define themselves as anything except from this experience? You know, will their country ever define them as anything else from the experience? Like, so, you know, it's it's definitely a movie that just shows you, like, war is stupid. War is sucks. And World War I especially was a stupid, shitty war. And Yeah, just a complete shit yeah. show. In this movie, we should say the, the war sequences, the battle sequences are incredible. I mean, they, they don't hold anything back. It's not easy to watch. No, there's violence. Yeah. Uh, there's all manner of stuff going on. I found the flamethrower scene to be particularly oh, yeah. watch. Um, but it's just, it's, it's very intense. The soldiers scream all mm. the time. You know, they're actually scared. I think in war movies way too many times, the soldiers get made out to be just like these larger than life action heroes. And they don't really ground them into how they probably actually would be acting. If they thought that the bunker was going to cave in on top of them, or if gas was coming to kill them, or if seven dudes with flamethrowers were aiming down on them, or if a tank was driving over their trench. Yeah. I'd be screaming my lights daylights out too. And that's what all these guys are doing. So it just really felt like a very grounded, gritty sort of realization of what world war one must've been like. And by showing us that through the first person, we're able to see just how bad and how terrible it all was, as all war is, as a war is raging in Europe right now. I was thinking about that the whole time yeah. watching the movie. I'm like, yeah, Same. we don't fight wars Same. like this anymore. But there's literally a co- an armed conflict where people are dying over basically nothing right now. Yeah. Over land. Over, over, over ego. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I was thinking about that watching this whole thing. Um, and I think that sort of gave it some extra impact for me. I gave it an eight out of 10. Uh, yeah, I definitely would put this one in the, probably in the top 10 best war movies I've ever seen. Like, you know, with, you know, movies like Saving Private Ryan or Black Hawk Down or um, Longest Day, Brandon Brothers. Like this is, this is up there with that. I'd, I'd give this an A. Um, yeah. <laughs> sad sad I, movie, but important message sad, sad but sad but worth watching because it's it's something that will make you think and i mean i think most people accept that war is bad <laughs> uh but uh you know this will sort of just make you take it to heart even more because this is something that was happening what 100 years ago and even longer than that over 100 years ago and we're still having conflicts like this now and it's just it's a shame so the message remains true as ever war is futile so um yeah anything else on this i think we're good right uh we're gonna try and have uh oscars are coming up next month so march the middle of next month we've the last two episodes i think we've done a pretty good job hitting a lot of the films but i would like to go through maybe some of the nominees and see if uh there's anything worth talking about that we haven't done uh probably in the next pod i'm trying to get one of our ex-hosts back on here mike whether it's the popcorn correspondent or evan bean uh i did talk about to evan uh about uh movies briefly the other day he just had a kid though so he's uh he says his <laughs> film watching has been down significantly but he plans on catching up on some stuff uh yeah. but he is doing well so that's good and that's um, good to hear for sure so anything else you got before we get out of here um 
yeah, just be nice. Everyone's going through a tough time. Just be nice to people. Go watch movies. <laughs> yep, movies are great escape. They always have been, and uh, these are four pretty good ones. So I uh, would recommend checking them out. But that's going to do it for today's episode of the Second Day Film Podcast. We appreciate everyone for listening. Appreciate you for hanging out with us, Mike. Uh, go enjoy that new projector. Uh, hopefully you're, you're feeling a little better uh, in the days to come watching more <laughs> good film. Uh, yeah. But it's, it's always nice talking to you, Mike. Always nice talking to you, champ. All right. So for Mike Nichols, I'm Braden Champion. Thank you for listening to the Second Day Film Podcast. We'll talk to you next time, and we'll see you.